H-A-L-E-Y-U-M-M-Y-R-O-O-M. That's right, it's Haley from Haley and the Crushers, and you are hanging out in the dummy room. This is the big time, girly. This is rock and roll. Hey everybody, you're in the dummy room. I'm Jody Have Not, joined as always by Mr. Nate Demo. What's up, Nate? Not much, man. How are you doing tonight? Doing great, man. How about you? I'm pretty good too. My day sucked, but uh, looking forward to tonight. We've been waiting to have this dude on for like eight months now, I think. <laughs> Since day one. Uh, um, of course, we're talking about uh, from Teen Idols, Screeching Weasel, The Queers, Even in Blackouts, Independence, Common Rider. Jesus Christ, Phil. <laughs> um, he, he worked at Sonic Iguana even. Philip Hill, how's what's up, dude? Nasty Nate, what's going on? And Joey, uh, hey. Hey, man. <laughs> yeah, thanks, thanks, for, thanks for finally being here, man. I think I think I asked you like eight months ago to be on, and instead of coming on, you, you got us Danny Panic. Yeah. <laughs> and uh, it was like, <laughs> yeah, <laughs> so it's awesome you're here. Well, I'm excited to be here, man. You know, like I said, I've, I've listened to uh, every episode, so I'm a longtime listener and I was part of the Facebook group and all that until I ditched my account. But yeah, I'm excited to be here, man. Yeah, super cool. Yeah, I didn't. Uh, I didn't include um, Rise Against. You were just talking about Rise Against. Uh, you were almost a member of that. Uh, yeah, very, I, I don't even know how big they are. They're like Arena Rock big, right? Yeah, I yeah. think they. I was watching some. Uh, well, the night that before that they came through here, they uh, they played some sold out show at Wrigley Field with um wow. fallout boy or something like that and wow. i know they played Ooh. with like lincoln park and at the bridgestone arena here in nashville so yeah they're they're big time <laughs> wow so, but i i engineered their first album called the unraveling and uh when they um let their other guitar player go they said well hell you already know all the songs you've sat there for hours listening to it in the studio and you know analyzing every guitar lick would you just play for us on this tour and i was like yeah sure so we had a blast Right on. When we got out, we got out to the California. Uh, a lot of the guys from Fat Records, you know, from the Office and stuff, came out, and they know me from Teen Idols and stuff. And they they saw me play with Rise Against. And they're like, "Dude, I didn't know you could play like that." And I was like, "Man, I'm an old thrash speed metal guitar player from way back. This stuff, <laughs> this actually Teen Idols is faster than Rise Against our the picking mm-hmm. style and stuff." Yeah. So they they couldn't believe it. I was like, "Dude, it's not that hard," you know? Right. <laughs> So let me ask you this, Phil. When you were doing the thrash metal thing, were you still on that Rickenbacker or what? Oh, no. I got that <laughs> in, I got that in 94. <laughs> I played a, a piece of shit Dean Bel Air that I had uh, hot-rotted Seymour Duncan pickup in through... Uh-huh. Back in those days, I was playing through a solid-state crate piece of shit amp. <laughs> but, uh, man, you know, you didn't need anything more than that. It had the heavy-ass gain that you need for that kind of music. But, right. no, nah, that was a second-hand... Uh, music store guitar i think i bought for like 200 dollars or something but i played that forever <laughs> right on actually i played that on the first uh, few seven inches for teen idols too i didn't get my rick until 94 so we started in 92 wow that's cool. how old were you? you were you were like just out of high school too right when i, I was started? i was the old man of 19 <laughs> and our singer was 16 uh 
bass player, I think, was 17. Actually, our first drummer was, he was 20. He was a year older than me, but then he didn't last longer than the first 7-inch. And then we got uh, our bass player's younger brother, who was actually 14. So, yeah, we were all kids, you know? Yeah. Yeah, so that's, that's why the name Teen Idols kind of made sense back then, because you don't really, at that age, you don't see past 21, you know what I mean? Like, yeah. We, we didn't know if anything was ever going to happen with the band, but I was like, yeah, whatever. The list of bands that you've been involved with, either um, playing with or recording, it's its pretty impressive, but to, to me and Jody, it's all about Teen Idols, dude. You <laughs> oh, know? wow. It's the band we love, and um, I, just, I don't know, it's something about the sound that you guys did, the you know great, catchy, fast songs, Keith's vocals were awesome, Heather's woes were yeah. fucking perfect. <laughs> Yeah, um, you know, we had a lot of different members over the years, too, yeah. which a lot of people don't really know unless they followed the old stuff, because uh, we kind of just kept throwing shit at the wall and see what was going to stick, you know. Um, some people seemed like they were going to work out, and then when it got too serious, they were like, ooh, I just want to do this as a hobby, I don't really want to, you know, live in a van for years, <laughs> you know, yeah. so, which we, we did, you know, in the early days, we didn't get hotel rooms or anything, we would take showers at truck stop showers and we'd pay five bucks for a key and then we'd pass it off you know and we we slept in the van and, and that van had no insulation so in the winter time you could actually see ice forming on the inside of the van while we slept there in uh, those like <laughs> zip up um sleeping bags with the hood on it like yeah. called mummy bags yeah and i used to wear like pre-masked intruder i used to wear a ski mask <laughs> to sleep in because it was so cold you know, up in like uh, Minnesota or something. Right. So uh, I totally forgot one day. I we pulled over for gas, and I woke up and I had to piss. So I get out of the van and I just go in the gas station, and I realize by the look on the guy's face, oh shit, I'm wearing a ski mask. Like pulled down over my face. I think he thought I was there to rob the right. place, but, <laughs> but yeah, um, we we didn't really get hotels until much much later. So uh, we definitely roughed it back in the old days. Yeah. The first time I saw you guys, I was telling you the other day, it was at uh, the 7th Street entry on the Queer Tour in 95, I believe. Oh, yeah. I remember that show. Definitely. Was that, your, was that your first big tour? That was our first tour outside of the South. You know, we, we started in 92, so we'd been together about three years by that point. But we mainly just played, you know, like Alabama, Georgia, um, you know, Tennessee, that kind of stuff. So, But we, we kind of started getting around... Um, the way that that tour even happened was uh, we played a show with the queers here in Nashville at a place called Lucy's Record Shop that was an all-ages, it was a record store with a venue in the back. And uh, I'd never heard of them. You know, like, back before the internet, we're kind of cut off. You know, unless you see something in the back of Maximum Rock and Roll or something like that, you don't know who half of these bands are that are even coming mm -hmm. through town. But we had a guy um, who was the bass player in a band called Fun Girls from Mount Pilot, uh, named Troy Pig, and he used to do a lot of record distro stuff, and he was really had his finger on the pulse of what was going on. He goes, "Hey, there's a band coming. I think you guys should open for them. They're called the Queers." I'm like, "What?" You know, like, at first <laughs> the name threw me. At first, I'm like, "Why? You mean like Pansy Division or like what are you talking about?" It's like, "No, no, no." Uh, so he gave me a copy, like a cassette copy of uh, Love Songs for the Retarded, and I heard it, and I was like, "Oh hell yeah, this is right up our alley." Just go round, round, 
playing the show with them in nashville and a funny story about that is uh back then they didn't really get many hotels either and they, they were looking for a place to stay and so i said hey you guys can totally stay at my place and i was living in the basement of an animal hospital at the time uh they had like an apartment and in the kitchen of that apartment there was a door that led into the area where like the dogs were kept in kennels for boarding and stuff like that yeah so that they follow me back to the animal hospital we go in and <laughs> B-Face can tell you about this, too. He probably remembers that Hugh, B-Face, and Joe. And they had uh, uh, Billy Morissette, who is in Dillinger 4. Uh, mm-hmm. Back then, he was in a band called Scooby Don't, so we knew him mm-hmm. as Bill, Bill Scooby. But Bill Scooby was on second guitar with them back then. They all come to my house, and they walk in. And I'm like, hey, B-Face, because B-Face was closest in age to me. And I said, dude, you got to check this shit out. And I take him into the area where they... Uh, where they boarded the dogs and there was this big deep freeze freezer and I opened the freezer and inside of that there's like these black garbage bags and I'm like dude check that out and he's like what the fuck is that and I'm like touch one of them and so he touches he goes dude what the fuck is that I said it's dead dogs and he's like oh fuck and so he comes out and he goes Joe dude we gotta get the fuck out of here this guy's got dead dogs in a freezer <laughs> so Joe's like yeah our guys are really tired we're, we're just gonna hit the road uh, thanks for the offer and they just took off so they didn't actually stay with me because B-Face freaked out but um <laughs> After that, a few months later, I get a call from Joe saying, you know, we really liked your band. I think we might have exchanged, I gave him some seven inches or something like that, but they liked us and um, wanted us to open for them on that tour. And I said, well, we've never really been out of the South on a real tour, so how about we just do like 
two weeks or something just in kind of the midwest and he was like actually that's pretty smart since you don't really know what the hell you're doing do it you know take a small <laughs> bite and see if this is for you or you know whatever so yeah we started in in cleveland on that tour i remember the very first show was at the euclid tavern and uh that was the first time i ever saw beatnik termites live which i was super excited for because i really liked them and i saw they were on the bill and they were not really what I was expecting. I mean, they were awesome live. I love the band. But, man, those guys are interesting people. And uh, Pat's a good friend of mine. He still is to this day. But I don't know, man. I don't know what I was thinking. You know, you hear the voice on the record, and then you meet them in person, and it's like two totally different things. But they were really cool, and we hung out. And um, I was excited to play that club because that was the club where they filmed Light of Day, the Joan Jett, yeah. Michael J. Fox movie. <laughs> Oh yeah, shit! This is the bar, you know. But that's cool. <laughs> anyway, but yeah, we uh, we only did like two weeks of that tour and just kind of did a loop, ending up in I think the last show of that tour was Omaha, Nebraska for us. But I was just going through some old DVDs and stuff that I've got. I have got that tour in several locations on video. One of them is from the Concert Cafe the day before the Minneapolis show that you saw, Nate. Cool. And, uh, yeah, that was, a. Uh, I can't believe anybody actually liked us on that tour because it wasn't like the real band. We had this guy on bass. We had a guy bass player on that one. Hmm. He was a big, big skinhead dude. I don't know if you remember him or not. <sighs> I don't remember. Yeah. He, his name is Jeff Fireball and he, he currently plays upright bass in a band called Hillbilly Casino, but he was in a band called BR549 for a while. It was on Atlantic records, but yeah, um, so he, he filled in for Roxanne on that tour because she was 16 and was still in high school. And so it, that tour was in October, and she was in school and couldn't go on the road. So we had him fill in, and man, it's weird <laughs> to see those videos with this big bald dude singing the really high girl parts, you know. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> but it, yeah, yeah I, was, I was telling you, there's a weird story. Sorry if I'm talking too much. No, but really, you're good. Love there it. was a weird story from that we played Green Bay and then we drove after Green Bay we drove straight to Minneapolis somewhere in the middle of that nowhere drive on that stretch of interstate we blew a a rod in our engine oh, shit. and there was engine oil was spraying the inside of the windshield oh so all we had was uh we had newspapers and we we're like smearing the newspaper. So I'm hanging my head out the window, driving in the middle of the night, you know, trying to see. And uh, the the oil was burning on the engine, so it was making this white smoke inside the inside the van. So by the time we finally get to Minneapolis, we walk in I'm like, hey, we're the Teen Idols. Our voices are totally fucked from the smoke. We've been breathing the smoke all night long. And we're like, how the hell are we gonna sing? You know, but. Yeah, that's just wow. how it was. Like you had to make do and make it happen somehow. All right. I love that show. It was uh, Boris Flayed and and uh, Queers, of course, and then Dance Hall Crashers. Yeah, yeah. Um, but I don't remember. I don't. You probably don't remember. But Joe like freaked out on that show because the venue was going to charge him like fifteen percent on merch or something. Oh, really? And he's yeah. like, "Fuck this place! Meet me in the van outside and shit," you know. And oh shit! <laughs> oh, he was selling so, merch from the outside from the van. Yeah, because they were gonna take a percentage, you know. So yep, yep, I've seen that happen before. <laughs> yeah, that that show was the 
when we were settling up at the end of the night, I remember that was the first time um, me and B-Face went to go settle the money because I always did like the manager stuff for our band. And uh, they had B-Face sign some kind of paperwork um, to get paid because they were paying us in a check. And it had his real name on there, which I won't <laughs> say because if there's people that don't know it, I won't reveal. But he looked at me and goes, don't you ever tell anybody my real name or I'll kill you. <laughs> I was like, okay. <laughs> Uh, wow we had a we had a lot of fun with those guys though it was like we learned a ton on that tour of just how to tour you know we learned from the best you know totally that's cool so what was it like when you guys were first starting off in nashville i mean how soon did you cultivate the whole like you know kind of greaser you know drape kind of look well i kind of that's my fault because right out of (laughs) high school uh, well, actually, yeah, I think I was still a senior in high school. I kind of got into this Elvis kick, like the old fifties Elvis. Right. And mm-hmm. um, didn't you used to call yourself Philip Aaron Presley for a while? Actually, that's Ben Weasel gave me that name, um, <laughs> which yeah, it's better than what he was going to call me. He was going to call me Phil Acio, and I'm like, yeah, Ooh. I don't think so. I don't think so. <laughs> so, so he came up with that instead. Yeah, I, I Phil Acio, <laughs> stupid. <laughs> But, uh, so yeah, you know, like I said, I was telling you earlier back in high school, I had really long dyed black hair. I looked like John Christ from Danzig basically. And one day, you know, I started getting into the Ramones and, and this early, you know, fifties rock and roll has always been kind of part of my background in music anyway, but I started really getting into the fifties stuff. And, uh, one day I got out of the shower and I was like brushing my long hair and I just picked up some scissors and I gave myself a fucking Ramones bowl cut just to see. <laughs> and I was like, oh, hell no. This looks awful on me. Like, it just does not look good in, on my head. So uh, from there, I just kept cutting and then I kind of, I didn't really know what I was doing and I ended up looking like Morrissey almost. And I'm like, oh, shit. But uh, I was like, what the fuck did you do to your hair? And so I started, I had to do some research and figure out what because i didn't know anything about like pomade or right you know brill cream or anything so i was using uh shaving cream to like <laughs> slick my hair back and I was, so i smelled like a key lime pie everywhere i went <laughs> but yeah but i mean did the nashville like the scene there did they embrace it right away or do they think you guys are like from another planet or what Oh no, they they knew me from years of playing in other bands and okay. stuff, and they knew that if they talked shit to me, I'd kick their ass. You know, <laughs> <Totally>. <laughs> I kind of have a I had a bad reputation for a long time of being the one that caused fights at shows. I think yeah. I heard uh, I heard you got shot once. Did you get shot when you were in Teen Idols, or was that before? That was before that. Um, when I was, I guess I was eighteen. Yeah, I used to have a, a big fucking mohawk, you know, back when and that shit wasn't cool, you know, before Rancid and all that crap. I was trying to look like the Exploited, and uh, we actually measured it once. It's a 17-inch Liberty Spike mohawk. Damn. I think there's, a, there's, I think there's pictures of it somewhere. Yeah, my, seen, my seen junior a couple pictures, year, yeah. Yeah, my junior year of high school, I had that. And so I was hanging out with some friends at uh, in the middle of the night, drinking beer and shit, you know, and some preppy jock dude rolled up in a lowrider pickup truck with tinted windows and i you know i thought maybe somebody from school was gonna say hi or something and the next thing i see is there's a little chrome barrel of a gun sticking out the window and a pop pop Holy one shit. bounced bounced on the street right next to my foot and the other one went right through my thigh oh. but uh it stopped on the back side of my leg like it didn't exit yeah. so uh i had to go have it removed but <clears throat> what happened was uh 
the guy shot twice and he started to drive away. And I was like, that motherfucker just shot me. So I, I looked around and I picked up half of a brick that was laying in the street and I threw it through his back windshield and busted it. And he slammed on the brakes. And right then I was like, oh, fuck. And I started to run towards the car that I was in. I could still run because I didn't break my bone or anything. And right. uh, that dude emptied the gun. He like four more shots. Jesus. And you see these glowing balls of orange lead flying past you. And I, I kind of dove. Fuck. And the last Holy one, fuck. the last one he shot ripped my shirt on the side, like near my ribs, Jesus. ripped my shirt, and it busted out the tail light of the car that we were in, me and my friends. And so uh, we, he starts peeling out. And I'm like, wait a minute, there was two shots, and then that motherfucker's out of bullets. Let's get him. <laughs> so so we jump in the car and chase this guy <laughs> down these back twisty country roads, you know, we're by the lake and stuff. And uh, he lost us in an apartment complex somewhere, and. Uh, so I'm like, dudes, I, I think I got to go to the hospital. I think I've been I've been shot. And and the guy, one of the guys I was with, was a total like into anarchy and shit. He goes, dude, we're not going to the hospital because anytime there's a gunshot, they're gonna call the cops, and you don't want the government involved. You know, I was like, well, dude, I'm shot. You know, like what the fuck? And so he goes, no, we're gonna go back to my place and and, uh, and dig it out with a steak knife because oh. I because I don't think that was a real gun because it did, it did sound like cheesy firecrackers. Turns out it was a 25 gauge pistol, which sounds kind of cheap and like firecrackers when they go off. But so we get back to his house and he goes, "All right, man, take your pants down." So I pulled my pants down. He goes, "We're going to the hospital." Yeah. <laughs> so like, right away he goes, "No, we better go to the hospital." So we get there, and I walk in and I got a, a person under each arm. You know, I'm kind of limping by this point, and we get up to the front desk, and there's this uh, this black lady who was working the desk, and I said, "Hi." Um, I've been shot. And she she freaked out and was like, You got shot you know, it's like starts kind of freaking out. I'm like, Now now I don't know how serious it is. I think it's just a flesh wound. You know, and she's like, Honey, this ain't gun smoke. You need to lay down. And so she like, they brought out a stretcher and they had to take x rays and they're like, Yeah, there's a bullet still in you and we need to take it out, but we gotta take it out from the backside of your leg because it, it missed your bone by a hair. Wow. And went in, went in the front, and they had to cut it out of the back surgically. So, but yeah, that's my fun gunshot story. But, you know, back back then in Nashville and just the South in general, if you looked like a punk or whatever, they would try to kill you. Like, for real. It, it's not a joke. You know, like, a lot of people think, oh, yeah, he looks like a fucking whatever. And it's like, no, you had to fight for that shit every day, you know, back just to listen to the kind of music that we do. They would try to beat you up or shoot Ooh. you or kill you or whatever, you know. It's like it's a different time now. Luckily, you don't have to fight to the death anymore. So. <laughs> That's some serious street wow. cred right there, Phil, dude. Yeah. You got shot for punk rock. That's crazy. That's right. That's right. <laughs> <laughs> punk rock or die trying. I think for for people from that time, it means more, you know, like it because you really did have to fight for it, you know. People, people would throw shit at you on the street. I used to have to walk home from high school, and people would throw shit at me and whatever. And it's like, fuck off. If I ever catch you, you're dead. You know? Totally. <laughs> so you kind of had to be tough yeah. know, back then. I can't believe That's I crazy. never heard about you getting shot before. That's fucked up. Yeah, I don't talk about it too much. But it didn't it didn't fuck me up too bad. I just I have a divot in the front of my leg about the size of a dime where it went in. <laughs> I saw you play live one time with a cast on your foot, but I didn't oh, know you shit. got shot. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, I remember that show. That was when you were doing the queers. Yeah, yeah. That, that actually, uh, part of that 
incident is mentioned yeah, in uh, uh, Houston, we have a problem. Yeah, yeah. I was trying to think yeah. about that on the show like months ago, and I couldn't come up with it off the top of my head. Yeah, I, yeah. So the story goes: Phillips drinking whiskey with a stripper, uh, like getting frisky, yeah, well, right? <laughs> she she was a stripper, but not at that time. She was, you know, a fan of punk rock, so she just happened to be a stripper for her job, right? <laughs> so, but but she was a friend of ours that we knew, you know, and she came to the show, and everybody was drunk, you know. I mean, you know, I was. I don't know about everybody, but <laughs> right. she uh, she jumped. <laughs> in my arms unexpectedly like i didn't see it coming and she just jumped with her arms around my neck and jumped into my arms and so i started to walk with her i was out we were outside on the sidewalk and the sidewalk was uneven and i tripped on the sidewalks and kind of threw her (laughs) she landed on her ass and broke her tailbone damn and and i i hit the hit the ground hard you know i'm like oh fuck something's wrong with my foot man something's wrong and so uh everybody started kind of gathering around and they helped me take my shoe my boot off and when they pulled my sock off some girl screamed you know like <laughs> like a horror movie and i looked down and what had happened was when i, I had steel-toed boots on and when i hit the sidewalk my big toe popped out a joint and went on Ooh. top of my foot so like my Ooh. big toe looked like it was like a stub you know and then there was this big gnarly. and so they're like, oh, fuck, dude, you got to go to the hospital right now. Like, that's bad. And so I get there, and, uh, you know, this guy is looking at me in the in the emergency room, and he's on the phone with somebody. He goes, yeah, I got somebody here. He's about to go into surgery and uh, have pins put in and stuff. And I'm like, whoa, whoa, are you talking about me? Like, what the fuck? You know, and, and uh, he gets off the phone. And he goes, yeah, dude, like, what do you want me to do? Your, your, toe, your toe is on top of your foot. You know, like, and I said, no, no, no. What you're going to do is you're going to grab that motherfucker and you're going to pull it back in a joint and slap two popsicle sticks on that shit and tape it up and send me home. <laughs> Holy I ain't shit. Get, I'm not getting cut. And, and he was like, uh, well, we could do that. But, dude, as soon as you flex your foot, that shit's going to pop right back out. And I'm like, I'll take that chance. You know, so that's what he did. You know, he, he said, we gonna, we're going to numb you up pretty good because this is really going to hurt. And yeah. I'm like, that's cool. So they came in and... uh gave me a bunch of shots in the the um sole of my foot with a long ass needle and a couple between the toes you know and Oof. the whole time he's doing it like i didn't flinch i didn't make a face or nothing and he goes damn dude like this is a long ass needle and you didn't even flinch and i i was still kind of drunk i think and i'm like hey it's like the belt buckle says and i ra- raised up my shirt and i had a belt buckle that said bad motherfucker on it <laughs> <laughs> and he was like damn okay so but yeah that's what they did they popped the thing back in joint slapped some some of those tongue depressor looking wooden sticks on there and then he was like i'm gonna put you in a cast up to your knee because if you flex your ankle this shit's gonna pop right back out and i'm like all right he goes leave that on for like six weeks and then have it removed it lasted about two days and i got sick of that shit and i cut it <laughs> off with a pair of uh cutters that i used to cut my bass strings when i changed my strings <laughs> I just sat there at the merch table and cut the shit off. It's fine. I've never had a problem with it. Wow. So I avoided, I avoided pins and surgery and expensive medical bills. <laughs> Damn, <laughs> Phil. That's Sorry. Crazy man, stuff. I'm rambling, telling you crazy shit. That's no, awesome. man, this is great. <laughs> hey, uh, Phil, how'd you, get, how'd you guys get hooked up with uh, Mulligan Stew and Rhetoric back in the... That was 94, 95? 
we used to play everywhere, you know, like every little town with any band, you know, like back in those days, we never really had a booking agent in the early days. I just did it all myself. And so a lot of that, a lot of our contacts came from, I don't know if you remember, Maximum Rock and Roll put out some editions called Book Your Own Fucking Life. Mm -hmm. And uh, so I bought, I bought that every year when it came out. It was like a yearly episode or yearly edition. And so I would just look up, Look at a map. You know, there was no uh, internet back then. So we literally had a trucker's atlas that, with those uh, laminated pages that you get at a truck stop. Mm-hmm. And, and I would just kind of plot a course and hit major cities. And then I was like, okay, well, we need to play somewhere between here and there. Or we're not going to make it. We need gas money. So I would just pick some little town. And I'd look up and book your own fucking life. And I'd find some somebody that had a contact for the close by. And I would call them up. That's how we used to do it. So... A lot of that was way more difficult than it is now. I'd have to pull over at a truck stop and advance the show like the day before. I'd have to call and make sure that the promoter was even still there, you know, because stuff changed overnight back yeah. then. You could show up and they're like, yeah, there, there's no club here anymore. We're like, what the fuck? <laughs> so, <laughs> so eventually it got to be too much for, you know, because I, I write all the songs. I, do all the booking i you know basically managed everything i drove the van like i did everything and so uh eventually it got to be too much for me to handle everything and write full albums worth of material all the time so right we started using these booking agents and um but yeah back to your story i think we met mulligans too that way and they knew brad rhetoric or something and so we ended up doing a split together but yeah, we we had a booking agent that uh, the Nobodies recommended a, their booking agent, which is a girl named Mary Catherine from Outpost Booking. I don't know, I haven't heard about her in years and years, but she only did one tour for us, and it was a disaster. We ended up playing like some fourteen-year-old girl's basement, you know, like weird <laughs> shit like that. And uh, so we were supposed to be paying her ten percent, you know, of the pay every day that was her percentage was 10 percent. so after like six weeks we finally end up she was out of new orleans or louisiana somewhere baton rouge i think we get to this the show and i see this girl i'm like dude i think that's mary Catherine. like she's not introducing herself to us but i'm gonna go find out if that's her so i go i was like are you mary Catherine?" she's like yeah um i'm really surprised you guys made it this far I'm like, what the fuck is like? You're our booking agent. How dare you? You know. So I said, oh, oh, well, uh, I have your percentage in an envelope, and she looked totally surprised. You know, I came back and I said, here's ten dollars. That's your ten percent of the entire fucking tour, because that's all we made was a hundred dollars. You know, like she's like, oh, well, thanks, and she left. She didn't even stay for the fucking show. I couldn't believe it. Wow. Wait. Yeah. So uh, fuck a bunch of booking agents. <laughs> totally. I just asked because uh, the, Mulligan Stews, Kevin's an old buddy of mine. Yeah, he was. Kevin, he was. In, he, yeah, he was in my wedding, and I remember uh, him and Brad went to uh, a Teen Idols video shoot. I don't remember which one. Years ago, <laughs> there was only one, so that would be the one. That's uh, the one, then. Yeah, from Mid- Midnight Picture Show. Children of the night, what music they! Can't wait for 
Yep, I just remember hearing uh, some stories about the video shoot and then, the, oh, yeah. I guess, the aftermath of the video <laughs> shoot. So <laughs> was, he, was he there for that? Holy shit. Yeah. Uh, I don't know how to say this, but it, it's not like we tried to have exciting stories. They just happen, you know? <laughs> <laughs> uh, yeah, that that video shoot got real interesting after the after party. There was a lot of alcohol involved, and uh, I ended up in a fist fight with a guy. And we, but then we ended up friends. And I don't know, it was really weird, you know. Like somehow, me and this guy ended up inside of our van, smashing Budweiser glass bottles all over the place, like inside the van, <laughs> and oh. and punching each other in the in the eye. I don't know wh- why we did this, and but I just remember it was there was a snowstorm going on. And it got so fucking cold outside. I'm like, I have to go inside the house because we're in, we're in the van, you know. And so I had to knock on the uh, the door of um, Kathleen from the Beauties. I don't know if you know the Beauties or mm-hmm. uh, yeah. And Eric Coleman and Kathleen used to be married. They had a house, and we always stayed there. And I remember just being still shit faced, freezing to death, knocking on the door, going, "Please let us in. We promise to be good," you know. And so. <laughs> <laughs> so, so they let us in, and I passed out on the floor. And the next morning, I think there was a picture somewhere of me sitting in a chair with some kind of like knit Afghan blanket on. But there's a gigantic pile of barf on the floor. Like I guess I just kind of <laughs> collapsed on the ground and I puked my guts out in my sleep or something. But yeah, those, those are the good old stories from the road. <laughs> so uh, Teen Idols only did the one video shoot, huh? Yeah, well, officially. Wait, I thought there was a video for 20 Below, too. Yeah, I made that probably about five years ago. Okay. It's a, it wasn't supposed to be like a thing. It was um, a friend of ours who works on the, um, the show Graveyard Cars on the Velocity Channel. I don't know if you've ever seen that, where they, they take old Mopar uh, muscle cars and they like, restore them. Anyway, the, one of the guys that's a cameraman on that show... Uh, wanted to have a music video in in his portfolio, and so he he liked the band, and he's like, "Hey, do you think I could just like shoot a video f- for one of your songs, like for free, and you know that way you guys will have a, a video, and I'll have a video for my portfolio." And I was like, "Yeah, sure." So he worked out a deal. Um, so he borrowed all the video equipment from Graveyard Cars to film that, and we just did it like in a couple of days out in the woods in Oregon, and. Uh, at the time, we were living in an apartment complex, managing the place, and uh, the next door neighbors moved out. So we used the empty apartment as like an apartment and set it up like we lived there or whatever. And then the you know the song, the storyline is yeah. about a guy that cheats or whatever. So uh, yeah, we smashed the hell out of that place <laughs> with a baseball bat and everything in there. We got from like free piles on Craigslist, like all the dishes that are broken and the. TV that gets smashed. It's all free shit that we got off Craigslist. So that was kind of fun, just smashing the hell out of a place. Yeah. It's cool. <laughs> but yeah, that wasn't supposed to be like an official video or anything, but we thought it was, it came out pretty cool. So I was like, yeah, yeah fuck cool. it. Let's, let's throw it up on YouTube. Fuck it. Yeah. Totally. I liked it. Yeah. So um, you guys got on fat through, um, through Ben Weasel? Right. Yeah, I always um, wondered what, how you guys didn't end up on like Panic Button because Panic Button started around that same time as that first record. We were slightly before Panic Button, so so the way that happened is um, 
we played here's a, a story sorry <laughs> i have all these stories but right, the, the, the way that we met ben was um during the nightmare seven inch which was our second singer keaton our uh, janelle was on bass and i think we might have had wes on drums but anyway uh the Riverdales, I think it was the Riverdales and Mr. T experience were playing at a club in Knoxville called the Mercury Theater. And uh, we got on that bill, and uh, the other band from Nashville that traveled was uh, uh, Fun Girls from Mount Pilot. Both of us traveled from Nashville to Knoxville, which is about, you know, almost a four hour trip and uh, to play that show. And um, when we got there, the promoter of the show is like some 16 year old kid and he comes outside kind of freaking out and he's like, you guys can't play. You guys can't play. And we're like, what the fuck do you mean we can't play? We just drove four hours to get here. And he said, Ben Weasel says you can't play. And I'm like, what are you talking about? And he goes, he, he has another band that he wants instead of you guys. So you're off the show. And I was like, well, let's go talk to him. I just want to find out exactly what the hell's going on. So, we both got the information at the same time. Me and the uh, the guitar player for Fun Girls got this information together. We both go in together, and Donnie was the guy's name from Fun Girls from Mount Pilot. He, he cuts in front of me, and he goes, I don't know who the fuck you think you are, asshole, but, you know, and all this kind of <laughs> shit. And Ben's just getting it hardcore from him. Like, he's up in his face, pointing at him, you know, and he goes, whatever, man, you're fucking not on the show. And so he storms off and leaves. And I just look at Ben, and I said, man, um, we drove four hours to get here. Can we just play after you guys? Like, I don't even care what order, you know, we just, we want to play because we drove all the way here. And he goes, yeah, you guys can fucking play, but fuck that guy and fuck his band. And he's never going to do jack shit with his fucking band. And I was like, we just want to play, man. I don't care. You know? And so, uh, at that show, I met Vapid. I remember Vapid was reading a book and I walked up and I said, are you Danny Vapid? And he just looks up and goes, yep. And looks back down and keeps reading. And I was like, okay. But, uh, so yeah, they were, I think they were in full on tour mode, you know, in the Riverdales. But, um, but we ended up playing the show and at the end, uh, the Riverdales had a roadie named Marv the roadie, who was actually Ben's roommate that ended up roadieing for us later. But uh, he said he came in and he grabbed me and goes, hey, Ben wants to talk to you out at the van. I'm like, okay. So I go out there and he goes, hey, I just wanted to say, you know, thanks for being cool with the whole situation. Oh, and the, the, the thing I forgot to add, the band that they replaced, the two, he thought we were local bands. That's why it was like, yeah, just ditch the local bands because um, Johnny Puke from Cletus Mm. wanted to play that show and huh. you know he used to be screeching weasels roadie so like they had a history and so he's like yeah fuck it we'll have cletus open the show and just ditch the local bands well we were the local bands you know which actually weren't <laughs> local at all right but uh i told ben you know they're all sitting in the in the van getting ready to leave and i said hey for your information just so you know this that guy that cussed you out earlier he's the promoter at tomorrow's show in nashville and he goes <laughs> Oh, uh, I think Panic is feeling sick, and we won't be making that show. I'm like, well, it sucks for all your fans, because there's a lot of us that really want to see you play, but I understand. He goes, yeah, fuck that shit. I'm not dealing with that asshole again. And he goes, but we will definitely stay in touch, You know, he said to me. So when they left, you know, I never expected to hear from him again, but um, when they came through town uh, opening up for Green Day, they played at the big municipal auditorium downtown, and I went to the show. I actually still have the Riverdale's T-shirt from that show. It says uh, Tour 95 on the bottom, on the back. But uh, 
I spotted a white van with Illinois plates. And I'm like, that's got to be the Riverdale. So I wrote a handwritten note really fast. And I said, hey, uh, your friends in the Teen Idols say hi or whatever. Welcome to Nashville. And I put it under their windshield wiper. And I never heard anything again. You know, I left my phone number and all that kind of stuff, but never heard anything. One day I got home from work. I'd had a shitty day at work. And I come home and there's a, a voice on the answering machine. and goes, hey, this is Ben Weasel. Uh, I just wanted to contact you guys because I'm kind of sick of the road and I want to start producing bands and I want you guys to be the first band that I work with. Give me a call. I'm like, holy shit. Nice. You know, so, <laughs> yeah, so that made, my, that made my day. Yeah, totally made my day. And so I, I called Ben and he was originally just shooting for a, a, a one-off seven inch on fat uh, because honest dons didn't exist yet and um they had just signed for uh, bark like a dog on fat and so he's like i think i might be able to swing something and get you guys like a seven inch or something like that it might open some doors for you so we ended up going up to sonic iguanas the first time we ever went to sonic iguana was to make a demo basically for these five songs that we were trying to get a seven inch on fat and uh they're they were actually songs that ended up on the first album. It's just alternate versions of them. And we sent those to Fat Mike, and he liked it enough that he said, fuck a 7-inch, I'm signing you to a two-album deal. So uh, he said, I got a brand-new label that I'm starting called Honest Dons, and it's for bands that don't really fit the Fat Records formula, but I really like, you know, so I want to sign you guys. And I was like, fuck yeah. So we ended up doing the first album. During that same time period, we got to know the Lillingtons, who had, you know, they had a couple of albums out, but they they weren't really like road worn yet. You know, they hadn't really toured a lot, and so um, we started talking to them. You know, like, hey, you guys should try to get signed and stuff. And that's, you know, Fat Mike really liked them too, but they kind of he passed on Death by Television. They sent it to Fat first or Honest Dons, and he goes, eh. 
I think I'm, I like it, but I think I'm going to have to pass. And so they had uh, Panic Button on the back burner, and so they called and just went ahead with Panic Button. The next day, Fat Mike called back and goes, you know what, I listened to that all night. I really, <laughs> I, I want to sign you guys to Honest Don's. And they said, oh, being the Lillingtons, they are definitely like you know men of their words and stuff. And they said, sorry, we've already made an agreement with Ben Weasel on Panic Button. So they turned down Fat Mike for panic button which i thought was like holy shit are you guys crazy but at the same time respect you know like damn you guys are true to your word for sure and we ended up when when death by television came out was right about the same time that pucker up came out and we ended up touring together to support both of those records which now looking back i think both of those records are kind of considered like classics you know death by television and pucker up and to think that we tour together to support both of those records and some of those shows there were like 10 people <laughs> and like holy fuck dude yeah we played shows in people's basements on, on that tour you know you played, just, you played my town on that tour L- lacrosse was <laughs> the very first show of that tour actually yeah really? i remember yep that yeah. was the very first show we nice. played a like nice. we played a couple of shows separately leading up to that but they were coming from wyoming and we were coming from nashville so we met in lacrosse which is totally weird. Like I don't know yeah. why. I don't know how that happened. I don't remember. It seems like we had a booking agent for that tour, but I don't remember who it was. It used to but, be a good spot to play. Used used to a lot of bands came through. Right. So. I remember it was a weird like warehouse type place that we played. Yeah. It's called the warehouse. It's uh, like oh, it's called the warehouse. Fifty <laughs> steps or some shit. It's like third floor place. Yeah, I remember it's the load in. Yeah. Load in loadout was a bitch. I remember that. I was like 15, 16. Um, we used to, you know, me and all my buddies would help the bands load all their shit up, you know? Yeah. It's like Super Chunk and Pag Boy. We'd carry their shit for them, you right. know? Right, right. But by the time you played there, no. <laughs> it wasn't, yeah, it wasn't, wasn't that you probably got anymore. lucky. The, uh, the guitar <laughs> cabinet that I played for years and years, I, I ripped the original speakers out and I replaced them with these... Uh, Electro Voice EV speakers. Yeah. Each one of those speakers can handle 300 watts. So it was a 1200 watt cabinet that I used to have. Big and the magnets. Mag- yeah. The magnets, dude. That thing weighs like 250 pounds. It's like <laughs> carrying a dead fat guy up the stairs. You know, every time you have to load that thing. <laughs> yeah, it's. Uh, I just recently took those out last week. Yeah. I'm like fuck, fuck these speakers. <laughs> <laughs> they still work and they sound great but fuck loading that shit around right okay so the first teen idols record comes out on the stands like and to me that's like the classic lineup of teen idols heather matt keith you yep how, how long had that lineup been a thing before that record came out mm, not real long because matt joined in october of 96 and we recorded that album in March of 97. Okay. So he'd only been with us like six months on drums. But that's a funny story, too. The way that we got him in the band is he's originally from a band called The Halflings. Mm-hmm. And uh, he and his brother and a guy named George, who was in uh, Cyclone 78, I think, is his most recent project. But anyway, those guys toured with us out to California and back. And... Uh, during that tour, we were having some problems with our drummer. He just he wasn't built for the road, you know. Like he wanted to go home, and uh, the song "Virtual Loser" is kind of about him because <laughs> it was the early it was the early days of the internet, and 
um, he was involved in those old school chat rooms. You know, like yeah. I don't know if you guys remember that shit, but I do. Uh, he was complaining that he couldn't talk to his friends or anything because there was no internet anywhere that we were going. And I was like, well, why don't you just call them? And he was like, well, I don't know their numbers. I'm like, well, can't you look them up in the phone book or call information? He goes, I don't know their real names. I'm like, newsflash, dude, they're not your friends. You don't even know their fucking names, you know? So so anyway, we were having trouble with him, and he wanted to go home and all this kind of stuff. And the whole time, we are watching the Halflings every night, and Matt was just fucking tearing it up on the drums. Like, dude, that guy's a fucking killer drummer. And uh, so he approached us one night, and he was like, hey, um, I can tell you guys are not really getting along with your drummer. Can I try out? I was like, dude, you live in New Jersey. How's that going to fucking work? And he's like, I'll move to Nashville to play for you guys. I was like, seriously? Yeah. Well, hell hell yeah, dude, if you're going to do that. Um, so I made him a cassette tape. <laughs> this back, that's how long ago <laughs> yeah. this was. Made him a cassette tape of um, all the songs that we had, and he would do overnight drives on that tour with headphones on listening to our songs learning and drumming on the steering wheel and he was like learning the songs <laughs> as he would drive their van so as, as soon as that tour was over uh i basically when i went to our drummer's house i threw his drums in the front yard and peeled out and said fuck you you're out and uh <laughs> literally threw his drums in the front yard and peeled out and then drove to new jersey and picked matt up and he lived at my house for several years after that and uh, we were roommates, and so he stuck with us. That's awesome. Yeah. That's cool. So how did Heather come into the fold and Keith? Uh, Keith was the guy that was always just hanging around our practice room when we had our second singer who was named Keaton. He's on the Nightmares 7-inch. Yeah. And uh, Keith was the guy who was, he was almost like a groupie. Like, he would just hang out, and he would, like, if we were recording new songs on our little four-track tape deck, he was the guy that pressed record. You know, like, yeah. he was just kind of like a mega fan. And so, sounds like Milo. Yeah, I was going to say, it sounds like Milo back then. <laughs> it is very day. similar to that story. And, and he was in a band before Teen Idols briefly called Brutus Fly, and they, they were not very good. And uh, I played bass for them on a couple of shows, and it was just like a train wreck. But um, their drummer ended up dying, in a car crash and so keith was without a band and uh even like even before that i picked up our old drummer steve from a party once and keith was at that party and this is when we were losing our first singer and uh he's in the back going dude i want to sing for you guys i want to sing and and uh our drummer standing behind him like moving his hand across his throat like dude no no this guy's fucking no way dude that guy's nuts or like no don't get him in the band so i'm like oh okay we'll stay in touch and i never you know but he just started hanging around because he was friends with everybody and uh, we were gonna do the tour with the queers and two weeks before that tour happened the bass player janelle and the singer keaton both quit the band like two weeks before the first day of the tour and i'm like what the fuck, dude? You know, so the so Keaton told me he couldn't go on the tour because he got a new job, and they weren't gonna let him take you know like two weeks off when he first starts his new job. And I said, well, what the fuck is your job? What are you gonna be doing? And he goes, I'm gonna be selling perfume door to door. I'm like, oh, what? <laughs> you would rather fucking sell perfume door to door than tour with the queers? Are you out of your fucking mind? And so. Uh, I got really pissed, and I'm like, well, we're doing the tour, and whoever goes on the tour is going to be the singer when we get back. And he goes, okay. 
I was like, what the fuck? And so, so uh, Keith's like, dude, I want to do it. I want to do it. And I was like, God damn it, dude, you can't sing though. And like, you know, <laughs> so I, I was like, all right, fuck. So we got Roxanne in the band on bass, but she was too young to do the tour. So we had to do a fill in with that Jeff Fireball guy I was telling you about. Right. Mm-hmm. And so we ended up doing double sets at practice every single day leading up to that tour where one set we would do with Roxanne on bass. And then the second set we would do with, with uh, Jeff on bass for the tour. And I told Keith, I'm like, you got to sing both sets every single day, every day leading up until it's time to go on the tour. He goes, I'll do it, man. I'll do it. I'll do it. And he did. And so, um, actually it's not bad. Like I have videos of that tour. I mean, it's rough around the edges, but it's Keith. He still sounds like Keith. Right. And I think it was just like boot camp almost for him where I made him sing over and over and over and over until he just got it drilled into his mind, you know? Right on. And, he ended up being with us for the next three albums, you know. Yeah. So, so why didn't you sing? Yeah, I was gonna say, did you ever consider singing? Because I know you got a great voice. You know, in the early days, I just wanted to be the guitar player because I wanted. We always had like a singer that didn't play anything and just was able to run around and like yeah. be high energy and get the crowd going and everything, you know. So, I don't know, man. I really should have because it would have kept the same voice throughout all the lineups right instead of changing we've changed lead singers four times which is usually death for a band you know yeah but uh yeah looking back on it now i should have just took over and had a second guitarist and just did the dual guitar thing with me on lead vocals but i made bad decisions (laughs) you know some could say bad some could say it worked the way it was supposed to work out you know i don't know i always liked his vocals a lot i guess he kind of was doing what you told him to do though right yeah, um, a lot of those early songs, well, actually all the songs, not not the early ones, um, I had a four-track cassette tape recorder that had a, a pitch wheel on it where you could slow the tape down or yeah. speed it up. And so I would write the songs, and then I would sing them, and then I would slow the pitch wheel down, and I would sing the girl part, like the, <laughs> the female vocal part, and then I would sing my normal part, and then I would give those tapes... I would dub them down to two track and I would give them to Keith and go, this is the new songs, learn it. And so basically he was just imitating whatever I did on those tapes. Cool. And even when we're in the studio, he used to take those tapes out to his car while we were tracking bass or guitar or whatever. He would be outside in his car learning the songs and singing them out there. So yeah, he basically was just imitating whatever I gave him to sing. That's cool. So actually, yeah, I, mean, I still have those four tracks. It's kind of funny to listen to, especially <laughs> Twenty Below, because I slowed it down, and you can hear me singing in this weird high voice. <laughs> wow! So you did both parts then? Yeah, all three parts actually, because yeah. I did my own part too. But okay. um, yeah, when we uh, when we recorded Pucker Up, uh, we only had six songs written when we went in the studio, and we ended up recording like twenty two, I think. And so the way that that worked was we would record the basic tracks during the day. And then uh, when everybody else went to bed at night, I would stay up all night and write songs onto the four track. And then when everybody else woke up in the morning, I would play them what I wrote the night before and they would start recording it while I went to sleep. And so it was really like tag team songwriting recording. (laughs) And uh, (laughs) yeah, it's really not a suggested way to do that because um, (laughs) luckily I worked, pretty well under pressure (laughs) but when you're in the studio and it's an hourly rate you know you gotta do some serious work in there or else you're wasting money yeah and uh so i did that 
after we did that record, uh, Fat Mike told me, he goes, dude, you guys are not Aerosmith. Don't ever do that again. You know, cause <laughs> it, ended up, it ended up taking us 52 days to do the entire record. Um, cause we, we broke it up in the middle and did a European tour with squirt gun and no effects, which was weird to do right in the middle of recording an album. Yeah. But, um, but yeah, that was, uh, not a good idea to do that, but I, I think it turned out good. You know, it's just, Oh yeah, that's pressure on, classic pressure on me like crazy crazy pressure in the studio but um the next album when we did full leather jacket he said yeah don't do that shit again like i want you to demo the stuff first before you go in i was like yeah 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 we'll do that no i think we had maybe three or four songs when we did that one <laughs> and i wrote all the rest of it in the studio the same way we did before um, i remember actually when we did there's a song called the team where we kind of each take turns singing little pieces of it yeah. I was I was writing the second verse as Keith was singing the first one, so it was like <laughs> talk about under the gun, you know, like hot off the presses. Here's the next verse, you know, like oh shit, and so you'd sing it. Yeah, well, that was crazy. I don't recommend doing that ever. <laughs> yeah, great results under that pressure, though, man. Yeah. Those, oh, those man. two records are gold in my mind. <clears throat> I'm glad you guys like them. I'm, I'm lucky that they turned out worth a shit at all. <laughs> really. <laughs> Hey, Phil, I always wondered who Porno Shop was about. Oh, okay. a green bay dude like you've been to the concert cafe a million times right yeah so, so you know that porno shop right <laughs> next door yeah that's <laughs> my do. inspiration that's my inspiration because uh nice. the first time we ever played there we showed up early and i had to piss like really bad and there was nothing open like you know that whole stretch right there like there's no businesses that are open nope. nobody was at concert cafe so the only thing that was open was that porno shop it's so, like <laughs> Fuck, fuck it. I'm going in. And I went in there and, and I said, I'm really sorry, but I have to piss. Can I use your bathroom? And he, she, I'm not sure, you know, looked at me like, really? And I was like, come on, you know. And so they're like, fine, go ahead. And so I went in there. And somehow that 
memory of that stuck with me, and I just wrote a song about a dude that works in a porno shop. But <laughs> I thought you were gonna say she, she or he had you mop up the floors. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> I started thinking about where I was when I was in the bathroom, going, "Yeah, this is a bad idea." <laughs> yeah, I never, uh, I never went into the bathroom there. I did go there with Joe Queer once, though. Oh, did you really? <laughs> yeah, we, me and a couple girls were hanging in the alley, and he came out, and they were just like, you want to go to the porno shop? And he's like, okay. That's kind of surprising, knowing Joe. I don't think he would do that now. So, <laughs> it was but, a while uh, ago, so. Yeah, that, uh, we love the, the concert cafe, man. That was always a blast, like Time Bomb Tom and mm-hmm. the punk parent that used to do the sound there. He always made us tapes of the shows, so I have cassette tapes from every single time we ever played there. Tom uh, the, said that he recorded every single band that played there. Tom's got tapes of everybody. I believe it. You know, they would Which, dub us copies, and we would he would hand us a copy as we left that night. So, yeah, I'm sure that they have those. Yeah, I saw I saw you guys there a couple times. I but that uh, one of the best shows that I ever saw was the New Year's Eve '99. Oh wow! You guys played that was that was great. I think I posted some pictures of it. I had some really shitty pictures, but, um, yeah, it seems like I remember that who else was on that show. Do you remember? Um, well, I remember my friends, the screwballs, which is right? Justin Perkins's band. Right, right. Um, they, they opened a few times. Yeah. And, um, mm, was that the Ruby, Ruby Gooley's Donna's show? Nope. Nope. That was mm, before that, I believe. Okay. I think Boris played, I mean, there'd be a shock, huh? Oh yeah. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> Yeah, so, yeah, I loved that. I actually, I would go to, I live in La Crosse, it's about three and a half hours away. Right. And I would drive over sometimes two or three times a week just to go to shows. (laughs) Damn. Yeah, so, and then I moved there for a little while, and then I was like, this place kind of sucks. Well, that was always a a great place. It was like a highlight of the tour every time we played there, because there were so many cool people there, too. You know, not only Tom and uh, everybody else that worked at the venue, but all the bands that played it was like a really tight little scene there. Mm-hmm. Like you said, Justin and Screwballs and those guys. Uh, and then like uh, Drew from the Jetty Boys. Yep. Used to be in the Leg Hounds. They, they played with us a bunch of times. Actually, we played a crack house there one time. <laughs> and and I remember G- uh, Drew was there. I don't, I don't yeah, They must have played. Was he in a band before the Leg Hounds or was that his? Mm, I don't remember ever. Uh, I don't have know. to ask him. I can't remember, but... I I never knew his name the first couple of times that we saw him, and I was like, "Ah, that's that dude that sings like Billy Joe." <laughs> like that's how I always knew him, like the little Billy Joe dude. But uh, yeah, they they were always awesome. Like he was a great guitar player to watch mm-hmm. whenever they would play. But yeah, we played at some, and I want to say the Queers were there too, but I don't. Maybe I'm wrong. But yeah, we played at some weird crack house on the second floor. I'm not sure who lived there, but there was definitely some crackheads on the first floor, and it was a sketchy ass neighborhood. <laughs> That's and you didn't play the ca- you played there instead of the concert cafe. Yes, yeah, it's been a long time ago. It was, but we had played the concert cafe though because we played that on the very first tour with hmm. the Queers. So yeah, I don't remember why we played there. I'm pretty sure it was Green Bay, or maybe it was somewhere in in Wisconsin or some maybe near Milwaukee or something. It might have been Milwaukee actually. Now that I think about it, yeah, yeah. I don't know. It's all a blur. There's so many shows, so many years, but right. Yeah, that's cool though. That's that's funny that that's what that song's about cuz I loved going there. That whole strip was always such a so entertaining, you know, just the variety of bars and people that were right there. 
Yeah, I remember when we would go there, I was like, there's no fast food restaurants in this whole fucking town. Like, everywhere <laughs> we'd go, there's like, we just were looking for a McDonald's or something, and there was nothing. Like, what the hell? <laughs> you got to go to Jake's Pizza across the street, if you remember that place. Yeah, I remember you guys talking about it. I, I don't think that we ever went there, but we did always end up at that bar. Was it called the Speakeasy or something Speakeasy, like that? Speakeasy, yeah. Yeah, yeah, yeah. We... Always ended up there after the concert cafe shows, and they got to know us eventually because every time we played there, we would end up there and end up closing the place down. And they eventually put some of our—I think they put our first album on the jukebox in there, which I thought was really weird <laughs> because it was like us and Leonard Skinner and ACDC, you know. Like, but right. for some reason, they had the Teen Idols record in there. <laughs> I remember cool. that jukebox being pretty cool. Yeah, so, yeah, they might have had some other bands. That were regulars too, but they yeah. did. Um, Time bomb Tom. He booked a crumbs there once for like three days in a row. Holy they shit! A, they played a Friday night. Like I think the Friday night show was like there. They headlined it, and then Saturday it was the Queers and Nobodies. I think, and then Sunday or he had a big festival show too. So right. they played three days in a row, and um, the show started pretty early. But I remember going into that bar at like noon. Uh huh. The crumbs were at a table. Oh, and then of go back at four, they're still at the table. Uh, and you go that... back at ten, still yeah, at yep. the fucking table. The only time I saw them move was when one of them took some chick to the van across the street. <laughs> it was like, Raph. probably Raph. Don't fucking. <laughs> all they did was sit there and drank all day. And that's we bonded with those dudes <laughs> on that level because they they used to stay at my house whenever they would come to Nashville, and and we would stay at their houses and stuff when we were in Miami. But yeah, dude, we've known the Crumbs from the very early days. I think they had that Alien Girl 7-inch uh, the first time favorites. I saw them. I think that's the only thing they had out when I saw them. And then they had, wow, what was it called, All Tangled Up or something, where they're like sitting at, they had a 10-inch where the they're all sitting at, yeah, and they're eating spaghetti in the picture. Yep. <laughs> yeah. yeah, yeah. So those that's like right at the same time that we were playing a bunch of shows with them in the South. Those were always a blast. Uh, back when Chuck Loose was on drums and all that stuff. Yeah, that, they, were, they were a great band. Absolutely. All right, Phil, so we still haven't heard about how Heather came into the fold. Oh, shit. Sorry. <laughs> That's all right. Sorry. I'm just curious. I forgot all about it. Um, so Roxanne was our second bass player, and, and uh, she went to high school. It's really weird. The high school where a bunch of these guys came from, uh, Keaton, Janelle, Steve, Heather, Roxanne, and Keith's girlfriend, oh, ex-girlfriend from back then, all went to high school together. So, And they were all like the only punks at that school. So everybody was super tight-knit and knew each other. And uh, we were riding down the street. One day, Roxanne was riding in the van, and I was driving down this road. And she sees this girl running down the sidewalk, and she goes, Oh, my God, it's Heater. And she used to call her Heater. And I was like, who the fuck is Heater? And so she goes, pull over, pull over. So we pull over, and Heather had, like, uh, purple hair and, like, black lipstick and a Marilyn Manson shirt. Like, she looked like kind of a Marilyn Manson goth girl when we first met her. And she had dropped out of school, I think, at 16 or something like that. And so they hadn't seen her. You know, she was, like, part of their clique, and they hadn't seen her in years because she dropped out of school and was working on a horse farm or something like that. So, uh she jumps in the van, and so they reconnected, and she started coming to our shows, or our uh, practices, and our shows too. But she was usually hanging out at the practice room with Roxanne because they were friends. And we decided one day, um, 
Keith's ex-girlfriend and Roxanne and Heather wanted to start an all-girl band, but they didn't know any girls that could play drums. And I'm like, fuck it, I'll play drums. And so, <laughs> so we started a side band called Monostat 7, which was kind of a funny, funny thing. And, and we never played a show. It was just like a practice room thing, but we played like uh, covers of Luna Chicks and uh, I think we did Bullet from the Misfits, shit like that. You know, oh. just, it was just kind of fun. And like Heather didn't know how to play an instrument, so I taught her how to play guitar. She was the guitar player, actually, in that band. And Keith's ex-girlfriend was the bass player. And Roxanne wanted a, a project where she was the lead singer. And so I kind of hated it because they were super into Bikini Kill, and I can't stand that shit. But um, so they they wanted to. She wanted to sound like Kathleen Hanna or something, and I was just having fun playing drums because I don't normally play drums. Right. But uh, I I bought a shitty drum set for fifty bucks off a guy in high school and taught myself how to play. Um, so I I can keep a beat and stuff, but my stamina is not there. You know, like after a couple of songs, I'm totally exhausted. I think I play too hard or something. I don't know. So anyway, that's how we met Heather. And she was playing guitar. And then uh, we started having some issues with Roxanne where she, she was kind of getting an ego and stuff. And it just wasn't working out anymore. And so uh, Heather told me one day, she said, man, she's an idiot for not realizing what she's got. You know, like you guys are starting to get popular. We had already gone up to Boston and recorded with Joe at Fish Tracks to do the More Bounce to the Ounce uh, comp and stuff, you know, and yeah. so she goes, man, I would kill to have her position. I was like, fuck it, you're in. <laughs> she was like, what? <laughs> I'm like, yeah, we we got a show, uh, we got a show booked in Knoxville, and our original first singer was gonna fill in on bass because Roxanne was basically out by that point, and uh, he called me last minute and said he couldn't do it for whatever reason. And, and I looked at Heather, I'm like, you ready? She goes, no. When I said, well, you're playing tonight. And so she jumped in the van and we she played her first show uh, in Knoxville with like a week's rehearsal of playing bass. Wow. She'd never even touched a bass before and uh, she did good. So she stuck with it. That's awesome. It, it's really weird. Like the way that I got a lot of the band members was totally by accident. You know, it's like they just happened to be in the right place when I needed them and it just worked out. It's cool. It really is. It's a band of kids from the neighborhood, basically. Yeah, you know, except for Matt who moved to play with us. Yeah, but that was later. You know, right? Yeah. Hey Phil, last week, last week, um, we talked about our favorite album openers, and uh, I had to go with uh, "Come Dance with Me" at the number one spot. Oh, really? And it's such a rad song, and I, I know there's like a, a pretty funny story behind it, but I've never actually heard you tell it. So oh, if you okay. wouldn't mind, yeah. <clears throat> yeah. Sorry, man. I feel like I'm I'm the long-winded storyteller right now, but. Uh, yeah, so I was at a show, uh, me and Heather, and I think Matt was with us at that point, too. Um, yeah, I'm pretty sure he was there. So there was a club called Hayes House in Nashville. It was a short-lived little punk place, and I think it also was a pizza restaurant or something. But uh, So there was a band from Chicago called Apostles on Strike that were playing, and they are kind of like a hardcore type of band. And uh, I was at the show, and I was shit-faced i was just like i didn't really know the band i didn't know any of their songs or anything i just wanted to fucking dance you know what i mean like i was just there to tear shit up and have fun and nobody was moving like everybody just standing there like they're glued to the floor and i was like trying to get people excited i was running around and shit trying to get people 
amped, you know, and nobody was having it. So I was like, fuck it. I'm going to make them dance, you know. And so I grabbed <laughs> this dude by the arm and I just basically started swinging him around, you know, like a fucked up version of square dancing or something. And just was <laughs> kind of using him as a as a battering ram to smash into other people. Poor dude was didn't see it coming, I guess, you know. And so eventually he, he fell down and I just grabbed him by the legs and started just basically sl- sliding him around on the floor like a mop, you know, and, uh, <laughs> and and people started getting pissed, you know, so it wasn't really security. I must have been like some of the owners or somebody grabbed me and said, you got to get the fuck out of here. You know, like you're creating all kinds of chaos and shit. So they, I was, that made me mad because I was drunk and shit. So um, the way this place was set up is the drummer was set up in front of these three kind of big picture window type of things that I don't know what you call that, but um, so his back was to these windows, and they had painted the windows white, so you couldn't see the band playing from outside. Well, they threw me out of the club, and on the way to the parking lot, I got pissed, and I'm like, man, fuck these assholes, and I, and I took off running as fast as I could towards those windows, and Heather saw me, and she jumped on my back, so I got Heather piggyback on my back, and I'm running full steam ahead and smashed my face through the glass and because it was because it was painted only the like the circle where my actual head went through broke you know like the rest of it was held together by the paint and so the dude's playing drums and all of a sudden there's a head sticking out of the wall like right next to his legs and i was like fuck you pussies i'm like screaming at the audience and i was screaming at the band i'm screaming at the audience and you know i was out of my mind you know and so they finally everybody pulled me out and they took me to the car I was I was ready to fight somebody at that point. I was just, my adrenaline was going, and so they they put me in the passenger seat of the car, and the owner of the place comes out and he goes, "Motherfucker, you know, broke my window and shit." You know, he's yelling at me. He goes, "What is your name?" I said, "My name is like I just yelled some kind of nonsense at him, and he was like, "What?" You know, and, and somebody's like, "Dude, that's Phil from Teen Idols," and he goes, "Oh, well, fuck it, man. I'll take care of the window. Just go ahead and get out of here." Like, I don't know why, I don't know if he had heard of my band or what, but he decided to just let it slide once he found out who I was, <laughs> which I, is ridiculous. I don't know why he just let it slide, but I'm he's, glad he did. He's you probably like, all that street cred, dude. Yeah, he he's got like, shot, yeah, broken Yeah, don't toe. fuck with this guy. I, 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 I don't know. He didn't want the, any trouble from me, I guess. So he's like, I'll just take care of the window, just get the fuck out of here. And I remember the next day when I woke up, I was looking at my face in the bathroom mirror, and I'm like, what the fuck is in my teeth and i like i start digging up in my gums between my lip and my gums and this glass like i start i start digging broken glass out of my gums and i had slept like that all night long apparently with glass up in my gums and shit because i guess when i when my face hit the window i was yelling like ah (laughs) fuck you pussies you know i don't know what i was yelling but something like that but yeah i had glass on my mouth the next morning yeah but so uh, th- there was a guy who was the roadie for the, and that band was from Chicago, and uh, this guy that was their roadie ended up being a friend of mine years later. But he went back to Chicago and he told a bunch of people, "Dude, there's this fucking band, and I've never heard a note that they've ever played, but goddamn it, they're gonna be our favorite fucking band because this dude's nuts." And like he was telling <laughs> all these people that eventually became my friends later when I moved there, like, "Yeah, well, dude, we heard this crazy story and we didn't even know what you guys sounded like, but we had to see this band." And I was like, "I don't know, man. I was, it was just a night out for me." <laughs> <laughs> back in the day 
Wow, Phil. Uh, I'm, I'm slightly insane, I think. I don't know. <laughs> but it's it's funny now because, you know, I'm a dad now. That's A lot of people wonder whatever happened to me. Like, I kind of disappeared at one point, and uh, I had a kid, and he's eight years old now. And so uh, I kind of decided when I found out I was going to be a dad, uh, I was going to stop drinking completely and sell all my musical gear and just get a regular fucking job and be a dad, you know? And so um, that's what I did, and uh, it's right been it'll be ten years next year. Uh, twenty twenty will be ten years since Teen Idols played their last show, uh, which oh. was was May of two thousand ten. So yeah, I haven't I haven't drank in almost ten years, and I'm a totally normal dude. <laughs> <laughs> so it's kind of not very exciting, but uh, you know. People are like, wait, wait, Philip Hill is a fucking father? Are you kidding me? I was like, yeah, dude, I'm I'm responsible. You know, I just like to I like to have fun sometimes. You know, right. But yeah, I've kind of tamed my shit down, but I'm still me. You know, yeah. But I I don't do uh, <laughs> insane shit anymore. Uh, I went up to uh, when uh, Screeching Weasel did that like 30th anniversary thing a couple of years ago. I went up and uh, played. A couple of songs with Ben on his solo thing at Reggie's in Chicago, and uh, you know they had a little discussion panel and everything. I was up there telling some crazy, funny stories and whatever, and and uh, forget where I was going with this story now. But anyway, um, yeah, people hadn't seen me in forever, and they're like, "What have you been doing?" And I was like, "I work a regular job, and I fucking I hung up the guitar and put on the work boots, and I don't drink anymore." And there was a guy at that show who said, dude, I don't, I don't know if you remember me, but the last time I saw you, we stole a, we tried to steal a fucking school bus. I was like, <laughs> oh, shit. Yeah, I, I vaguely remember that. And what had happened was I went to a, a bar. like There was this, some karaoke bar, and I was by myself. Like, I used to just do this. I, it's totally irresponsible and stupid, but I would just go to some random bar and get shit-faced drunk and just do crazy shit to entertain myself, I guess. But um, <laughs> I met these random, like, five random people. They didn't know me. I didn't know them. And I'm like, come on, we're going to fucking steal a bus. And we went outside. I don't know how I convinced them of this, but there was, like, a short bus across the street for, like, handicapped kids or whatever. Yeah. And I go over there, and I'm like, fuck it. I'm going to steal this short bus. And so... I, I kicked the window, like the, the door glass, out and reached inside and I opened the door and I got inside and I'm like ripping the wires out from underneath where the steering wheel is and I'm like trying to spark them to hotwire the... And, and the dude's like, have you ever done this before? I'm like, no, but I've seen it in the movies and shit. And he, was like, <laughs> he goes, you don't even know what the fuck you're doing? I'm like, no, but I mean, how hard can it be? You know, but I... I and after about 10 minutes of this, he's like, dude, we probably should leave because I bet the cops are coming and i was like yeah fuck it you're probably right so i ended up going back to their house and just partied the rest of the night with these guys <laughs> i i don't know who they are you know but when i saw this guy at the weasel show he reminded me of that story he goes i still have that bus driver's id in my dresser drawer you know, i was like what the <laughs> fuck but yeah that was the last time that i really got like shit faced which is probably a good thing that i don't because that's the kind of shit that happens <laughs> wow damn a night on the town with me is definitely something to remember. <laughs> totally. 
Okay, so let's get into the whole like thing. Okay, Teen Idols do their thing. Everybody loves it. They're one of the greatest bands ever. But then the next thing I knew that you were doing was playing with the queers. So how did that come about? So um, probably about 2001, uh, we all just kind of started doing... There was some downtime, basically, and we were like, let's do something to keep ourselves busy. And I wanted to change the pace, so I decided... I talked to Mass, and I was like, hey, because usually the the records, I ended up kind of engineering most of the record anyway because I, I have an audio engineering background. And so um, Mass said, if you aren't doing anything, I could use you at Sonic Iguana as an engineer because I have a – this was kind of during the, the peak heyday of Sonic Iguana being really busy. And so I ended up moving up and being uh, Mass's roommate for like two years and I worked at Sonic Iguana seven days a week, 12-hour days. It was just like hardcore recording all the time. And uh, one of the projects was Pleasant Screams by the Queers. Right. And I wasn't originally even supposed to be the engineer on that project. And I was just hanging out because I was friends with everybody there. And so I would hang out in the... Uh, there's an apartment above Sonic Iguana for the bands to stay at. And I would just hang out up there and watch... TV or play PlayStation or something, and finally Joe comes up there one day and goes, so when are you going to fucking come down and work on this record? I'm like, well, I didn't know you wanted me to. And he said, yeah, let's fucking, let's have you start tomorrow. And so I was like, all right. So I started out as just the engineer, and uh, as they started recording songs, I started hearing these harmony parts, and I would sing them to Joe, and he would go, fuck, get behind the mic, fucking do that. you know. And so I ended up singing on... A whole lot of stuff on uh, Pleasant Screams. And then he ended up throwing some guitar stuff at me there. I played the solo on I Want to Be Happy.
and uh, some other weird guitar stuff on like just got to blow my mind and some of those yeah. strange songs. But um, when it came time to do the tour after the record was done, uh, Joe called me up and asked me to play second guitar for the Queers because I, he wanted my backup vocals to be you know, live, do the same shit we did in the studio, but right. on stage. And so I ended up, because uh, Matt from Teen Idols was playing drums yeah. for them at that time. And so uh, I was like, all right, yeah, cool, I'll do that. But can we have Teen Idols open the show? Like be on the same bill since me and Matt will be there anyway. And he was like, you guys want to do double duty every night? And I was like, fuck it, dude, we can do that. So, uh, <laughs> so we did. Yeah, like... We would play probably about a 30 to 40 minute Teen Idol set, and then me and Matt wouldn't even leave the stage. And then Joe and Dave Swain would get on stage, and we'd play like another hour and a half. So, yeah, that was like pretty. Uh, but we were kind of like totally on top of our game as far as playing live all the time because we toured, Teen Idols toured like nine months out of the year straight <clears throat> all over the US, Canada, Europe, Japan, wherever, you know, and we were just at the peak of our playing ability, I think. So it didn't really phase us to be on stage for two and a half hours every night or whatever it was. Right. But yeah, that's how we kind of started doing that. And then uh, eventually the band kind of fell apart and Joe needed other members. And then he asked me, he's like, do you know any drummers? And I said, yeah, actually, uh, Salsa Dave, who was from the Beauties, uh, was also playing with me and even in blackouts at the time. And I said, yeah, Dave's good on drums. You know, I think he would probably be interested in playing. And he had Hugh O'Neill's old kit. So when Hugh died, uh, Dave ended up buying his kit. And so it was almost like Hugh O'Neill's drums were alive again, you know, on the, yeah. on the road with the queers, which was awesome. Totally. And just to look around and see the, the kick drum that said, Mr. O, you know, it was like, Oh fuck. It's like Hugh is back with us all of a sudden. So I ended up switching over to bass, and we were a three-piece yeah. at that point. I actually ended up getting in a bad fist fight in Memphis, Tennessee, because uh, we were playing a show, and all of a sudden, like, I noticed there was another person on stage, and I turned around, and there was some fucking dude, some drunk kid was on stage with a red paint pen drawing all over the drum set oh. on Hughes on Hughes drums and I lost my mind dude I, I threw my bass down and I grabbed that fucking dude in a headlock uh, I was on his back like a backpack and I was just fucking punching his ear as hard <laughs> as I could like and they ended up having to pull me off of that kid and they dragged him out and I just remember as they were dragging him out somebody got in his face and said you just got your ass beat by a queer which I thought was funny <laughs> but uh but you know, then I threw the bass back on and I said, motherfucker, you know, I'm sorry, but that dude was drawing on Hugh O'Neill's drum kit. That's like pissing on his tombstone. You know, fuck that shit. And everybody was like cheering and shit. And I said, you want to hear some more fucking songs? And everybody did. So we played some more. Like Joe, I feel bad because Joe, during these times, couldn't do anything but just stand there and watch me beat some guy's ass instead of playing the song. You know, <laughs> it's like it kind of put a, a halt on this on the show for a minute. That shit happened also another time in, in uh, I think it was in Charleston, some guy started poking me in the stomach like with his finger saying that I was fat, and I just lost my shit on him and started, I, I still had the bass <laughs> strapped on, but I he had a ponytail, and I remember grabbing him by the ponytail and just pounding his face in with my fist, and as I'm kind of dragging into the crowd, I turn around and look, and Joe's just 
calmly putting his guitar in the case and latching it shut like the show is over. You know, I was like, oh, I felt like a dick, you know, but fuck that guy. Right. You know, poke, who the, what kind of asshole pokes somebody and says you're fat, you know, in the middle of a show while you're trying to play? I don't know, but so I used to kind of lose my shit on people sometimes. <laughs> I am Ben Weasel. You are listening to The Dummy Room with two confused young men who have bad taste in music. Enjoy. So were you playing with Screeching Weasel, Teen Idols, and Queers at the same time at one point? Yes, and even in Black Ops. At, at right, is... after, right after Weasel happened, you know, uh, Jughead, pretty early in the game, had, had me playing with Even in Black Ops. So I was in Even in Black Ops and the Queers at the same time. Uh, but at one point, yeah, when we did the Midnight Picture Show video, uh, that was right before, I think, the... the um, first house of blues weasel shows were coming up soon because i've got that whole show uh we played a free show for our fan club members and stuff at the um in fort wayne for the video shoot and i remember keith i have it on video somewhere keith's announcing that i'm going to be playing for screeching weasel and but ben didn't want me to play my rick because he was like fuck that rick uh we used to have a guy named Doug Ward who played a Rickenbacker and fuck that guy and he's you're not playing a Rick in my band so I'm like well shit so I ended up getting a Moserite from Flav who was a Moserite dealer back when he was doing GPC guitars right. mm-hmm. and he hooked me up with a sweet deal on a Moserite so I, that's the guitar I played in Weasel yeah that's crazy though yeah, the, I mean, the time, timelines are weird man because like I, I overlapped a lot of shit so I was like playing in multiple bands almost all the time and when I wasn't on tour with multiple bands, I was in the studio as an engineer at Sonic Iguana. So uh, definitely music was my job, you know. It's awesome. Yeah, but I, but the bands were like these, you know, our bubbles, the legends of this, you yeah. know. Only the best. Yeah. 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 <laughs> yeah I, don't I don't know. I just got really lucky, man. You know, I was in the right place at the right time. And uh, when I got asked to join Screeching Weasel, it was on heavy suggestion from Mass. You know, Mass was like, I really think that Bill would be great in this band. And so Ben's like, yeah, let's try him out. So, yeah, I remember when we first showed up for the very first rehearsal, it was at Jughead's house because we used to practice in the basement. And uh, just to be a smartass as we're getting out of the van, because I was living with Mass at the time, and me, Mass, and Lumley would drive the squirt gun van up loaded with equipment, and we'd get to Jughead's house and then load it all in. And I said... To, to Jughead, and I knew this was going to like make everybody freak out. I said, well, shouldn't we wait for Ben to get here to help us load in? <laughs> and they all, there was like this really uncomfortable silence, like, yeah, that's not going to happen. And I was like, I'm just fucking kidding. Let's load this shit, you know? <laughs> but I always like to test my boundaries right off the bat, you know? <laughs> yeah. <laughs> so of all the different bands minus Teen Idols, what was your favorite stuff you've worked on? Man, I've had so much fun in so many different bands probably the queers you know like that was just like a constant blast all the time 
That's awesome. Um, Screeching Weasel was fun, but it was almost more like like a job, you know. It was uh, on a more professional type of level, as we were playing, you know, big shows at House of Blues and stuff like that, and we were pretty polished. Uh, the Queers was kind of a free for all. There was uh, more of a, a sense of you didn't know what the hell was going to happen next playing with them because <laughs> Joe doesn't use a set list, so you just have to know like sixty songs, and it could you could be playing any one of those at any time. You know, at least when I was in the band, it was that way. And uh, you know, Joe doesn't like a lot of drinking and stuff on the road. And like I said, I pushed my boundaries right off the bat. So when I first started touring with those guys. One day I was sitting at the bar drinking before the show, and Dave Swain was like, dude, what the fuck are you doing? And I'm like, I'm having a fucking beer. What do you want? And he goes, don't let Joe see. I'm like, what the fuck's he going to do? You know? <laughs> so, <laughs> uh, I found out what he's going to do uh, several years later. He fired me, you know, so um, rightfully so, because I was a mess, you know, during a lot of that shit. We played some shows with the, I think it was the Mad Caddies were with us, and we were playing someplace. And we loaded in. We had like all day long to wait before we were even going to start the show. So I just started drinking early. And uh, the singer from Mad Caddies came in with his girlfriend and introduced me to her. And then they went and saw a movie. And then they came back. And uh, he came back over to me and said something. And I looked at his girlfriend and said, oh, hi, I'm Philip." And I introduced myself again because I did not remember meeting her like two hours earlier. I was already fucking blacked <laughs> out, you know. And uh, so we I don't remember the show at all. It was a complete blackout. But the next day they said, man, I didn't know that you guys uh, played Route 66. I'm like, we don't fucking play Route 66. He goes, you did last night. And I was like. <laughs> was I good? He goes, dude, you didn't miss a note. Like, I thought you guys played that. And I'm like, fuck, I've never played that song. And he goes, yeah, you did last night. And it sounded good. <laughs> like, fuck, dude, I got to stop drinking, you know. <laughs> wow. It was like mu muscle memory at that point. You just kind of know, you know, the root notes because you've heard a song a million times and you just kind of work a bass scale around it, I guess is what I did subconsciously. Yeah. But <laughs> somehow it worked. <laughs> wow. Little trip. Yep. So you weren't in Scrickum, but you you had told me the other day that you sang some demos for him or something. Yeah, because I I lived with Mass for two years, yeah. and so so um, they had Flav had come up with a bunch of songs that he was writing uh, that were going to potentially be Squirtgun songs or maybe his solo. You know, he he wasn't really geared toward being a solo artist yet. <clears throat> so they were like, we should just start a side band uh, and call it Monkey Boy and and have you be the lead singer. So it was basically Mass on bass, Flav on guitar, Dan Lumley on drums, and me on vocals, not playing an instrument. Wow. And, and, we, and so it was basically like Squirt Gun with me on lead vocals. And so we ended up recording, God, it was a lot of songs. It might have been like 10 songs or something in the studio but they never got finished because they ended up just kind of being, I, I was too busy playing in all these other bands. So I didn't really have the time to dedicate to being in another band. And so uh, they took those recordings and kind of made them demos for the record that ended up being called Fade to Bright for Squirt Gun. Mm -hmm. And so I, I still have copies of those wow. rough. I mean, they were, they were never like really mixed or anything. And, the vocals aren't super like studio magic polished or anything, but they're not bad. You know, I mean, I think I did okay. <laughs> but 
But uh, yeah, that, that's a weird project that nobody knows about because it never really did anything. But I do have interesting recordings of that stuff. That's, that's cool. cool. I like that record. I I think it'd be cool to hear you singing on it. I guess or some yeah. of the songs at least. So um, I ended up singing some backup vocals on. There's a song called Model Builder, mm-hmm. and and I do in the chorus. There's a really high. There's like model builder boy, and that's me doing the, the high, <laughs> high, high shit. I think that's the highest note I've ever hit on any record. Was that boy? It's up there. It's like pushing my range to the maximum on that one. Hmm. Wow. So yeah, I, it's weird because I kind of have a. I don't know what you would call my voice. It's not definitely not a soprano, but I, I can hit the upper registers pretty well, and that's kind of where I'm most comfortable uh, when I sing. I would say probably the the person whose range I have that's in our bubbles, like a Milo kind of vocal range, is definitely not deep at all, but it's not like shrill, so right. it's kind of in that in that Milo range of vocal tone. That's awesome. That's cool. So you know, being on the outside of Sonic Iguana, like it seems like there was so many great records that came out of there. Oh yeah, um, a pretty you know, as a pivotal part of our of our music scene, you know. Um, seems like they were all good. Was it? Did, was there ever shitty bands that came through there that just had <laughs> well, no business being there? During uh during the the peak heyday, usually Mass would only book bands that you know. If he was producing, it was going to be a band that was totally in our bubble and sounds like you know. Some of the bands, worth producing. yeah, yeah, like the Lillingtons or the Riptides or you know th- those kind of bands. Because mm-hmm. during that time period that I was living there, there was a, a waiting list, you know, like because we were booked solid all the time with just like, you know, the the heavy hitters all the time. But then uh, there were, you know, it's a business, so you have to keep the doors open, so you got to pay the bills. And there were definitely bands that weren't quite up to snuff and uh that's kind of how i started cutting my teeth as a producer because mass didn't really want to work on those records and he was like you want to just produce it and engineer it by yourself go for it and so i started doing that a lot a lot of the smaller bands uh didn't even see mass you know it was just me the whole time and then uh, usually mass would mix those for me though just because you know uh, he has two sides of the studio i don't know if a lot of people know that but there's a studio a and a studio b Studio B is where he mixes everything, and Studio A is more of a tracking side where the the drum room is. Mm-hmm. So, so there's been times like when we did Monkey Brain for the Queers, we were tracking in Studio A. I was playing bass, and then at the same time we were also tracking in Studio B with um, even in Blackouts for Follow the House of Even. I took a
I was playing bass on both projects, jumping back and forth, which was kind of hectic. But uh, it's kind of <laughs> weird because they're two completely different sounding records, yeah. you know. Mm-hmm. So I, I had to switch my brain from queers to even in blackouts mode in the, multiple times in the matter of the same day. But yeah, there there were definitely lesser known bands, and you know, some of those lesser known bands actually became bigger bands in our bubble uh one of them is, is the putts the i did the oh, putts yeah. record the whole hole in one yeah, uh yeah. when those guys came in they i mean i hate to say this but they really shouldn't have been in the studio like they they barely knew how to play and uh didn't really have a concept on any kind of harmonies or melody that much so i kind of helped them guide that record to be what it was wow and cool. uh they've got gotten way better i mean i i heard that recent thing that they did that they recorded with joe at his home studio and man it's i couldn't believe it i was like man was that like a nightmare to work with those guys he was like no actually they were really good i was like fuck they must have been practicing over the last 10 years (laughs) (laughs) you know it's funny uh you know pat patrick uh back in the like early early days of the teen idols he was one of the first dudes i ever knew that actually knew about you guys other than myself Oh really? Yeah, he was uh he was living in Kentucky at the time and he would come to St. Louis all the time and hang out with my band and then he was the first dude I ever saw with a Teen Idols pin. I'm like, "Holy shit, someone else likes the Teen Idols?" Fuck yeah. Oh, that's funny. Yeah, yeah. I used to he was uh usually at the Creepy Crawl whenever we would play there. Oh yeah. Definitely. And then we started seeing him all over the country. Like yeah, he would he show was up out in, uh, he was crazy with that shit. Yeah, like he would he would be in Hoboken, New Jersey. I'm like, what the fuck? How how are you here? You know. And then uh, there for a while, he was um, following the queers and the eyeliners tour and going to like yeah. every show all the way out to like New Mexico and Arizona and shit. Oh, I'm like, yeah. what the fuck? And then he started playing crazy. drums with the eyeliners after that. Exactly. Yeah, yeah. That was weird, man. Like, like what the hell? And then he ended up being uh, before I was in the independence, he was their merch guy, like yeah. their roadie. Yeah. I was like, holy shit, this guy's everywhere. <laughs> but yeah, man, that dude would just drive all over the country to see these punk shows. I don't know how how he afforded to do that. I don't know. I, I don't either, man, because that, <laughs> that takes a lot of time off of a job you know, yeah. to do that. Plus tons of gas take, money, you know what I mean? Yeah, I don't know if you take vacation days or what, but man, or that's... A trust fund or something? I don't know. I don't know. <laughs> I saw, but, yeah. I saw uh, Scared of Chaka in Green Bay once, mm-hmm. and a few weeks later, I was in San Francisco, and they happened to be playing, so I went and saw them, and then literally like a week later or so, they were in Montreal, and I happened to be in Montreal, uh-huh. but I was leaving the day they were playing. They're like, and I dude, thought, this guy's a stalker. I thought I could really <laughs> creep these fuckers out. I didn't go to the Montreal show, because that'd be really weird, but yeah, yeah. I, I probably appeared to be moving around. Like, yeah, I, but there was some weird I reasons. I think that, that. Uh, I think Joe might have upset Patrick at one point when we were on the Eyeliners tour because uh, I think we were playing in Albuquerque or somewhere, and in the middle of our sound check, he walks in, and Joe starts. Joe sees him. And he's like, "Fuck, it's that dude again!" You know, and so he starts playing. Uh, Everywhere I go, you're there by the muffs. You know, and, and <laughs> Pat, Patrick turned around and walked out. I think he might have been a little pissed, but. Yeah, that, that was kind of funny. Yeah, and then he ended up being <laughs> in the queers for a while. I know, I know. It's small it's like, world, dude, he's dude. everywhere. Yeah, he's <laughs> everywhere. Yeah, that's I like cool. the putts, though. I think they're pretty good. Yeah, I mean, I'm I'm really glad that they stuck with it. 
because I didn't know if they were going to when I was working with them, but uh, yeah, it turned out really good. That's cool. Did you did the guts too, right? Oh yeah. story about that one <laughs> sorry i'm telling you a million stories tonight, oh, that's but, good um yeah so i was gonna record the guts at sonic iguana and i had talked to them and they were like yeah we're gonna be there you know around noon or one you know to to load in to the studio i'm like oh fuck it i got a lot of time you know so i went out the night before and got shit-faced and i was at this bar i mean like i got really shit-faced like way more than i should have where uh, a buddy of mine had to actually let me into the studio because I couldn't get the key in the door. Like, you know, it was like that fucked up. <laughs> and I was I was crawling around on my hands and knees outside of the door in the grass. <laughs> and uh, he's like, dude, you know, that's where Mass's dog takes its shits. And I'm like, fuck it. I said, that's just the way I crawl, man. You know, and so, it, so he opens the door and I crawled inside. I was just, just fucking lock me in, you know. So I crawled in halfway down the hallway and I must have just collapsed like in the middle of the hall. And I woke up to Jeff useless tapping on the door. 
at the glass door of Sonic Iguana, and it was like nine in the morning. Like they'd got there way earlier than they were supposed to, and I fucking jerk up, you know, off the floor, and I'm covered in barf. Like it's all in my hair. I still have my boots and my jacket on from the night before. I'm just covered completely, head to toe, and puke. And I get up and I answer the door, and it's like. I had known Jeff a little bit from playing in the queers, you know, and being up around New Hampshire and stuff, but I didn't know any of the other people in his band at all. And uh, I'm like, oh, oh, hey, you're early. Cool, man. Let me uh, let me let you in next door and then you guys can load in. And I'm, I go over there and I'm unlocking the studio and I hear one of them say, dude, is that barf? <laughs> like, <laughs> and then I realized, oh, fuck, I'm covered head to toe in puke right now. You know, like I'm meeting these people for the first time. And so I let them in. And I said, hey, I'm... I'm going to run next door and uh, and freshen up, man. I'll be over in like, like 20 minutes. And they're like, okay, yeah, cool. You know, like, dude, what the <laughs> fuck? And so I, I come back. I, I jumped in the shower, cleaned up, changed clothes. And I come back. I'm totally fresh, like ready to start the session. And I'm all cheery, meeting everybody and stuff. And they're like, what the fuck? Dude, that guy was covered in puke when we showed up. <laughs> I had to apologize to Jeff for that recently. I'm like, dude, I don't really think he goes, dude, that's one of the most awesome fucking stories because, like, nobody expected that shit. <laughs> yeah. That's great. Yeah. And, you know, I worked with uh, the, the Mangies to do the um, Mangies Go Down record. toured with those guys when i was in the queers we toured together all over europe we actually shared the same tour bus and not a bus it's like a, a small little van thing that had bunks in it with a trailer and we we both bands piled in together so we got to know each other really well on that tour and uh they saw my shenanigans and shit you know i was always fucking doing crazy shit all over the place <laughs> and when they asked me to produce their record 
uh, I was like, yeah, hell yeah. And I was in Europe touring with Even and Blackouts, and when the, after the last show ended, I just took a train from wherever the hell, somewhere in France, I think they were flying back to the States, and I took a train across France and Belgium all the way to Italy, and they don't fucking speak English on those trains. <laughs> I mean, you know, in Belgium, obviously they don't, but man, I really had to pay attention where the fuck I was going, or I was going to get lost in the middle of Europe somewhere. I had no cell phone or anything, you know, I was just winging it. But uh, when I got there, I think they were surprised because I had shaved my hair into a mohawk, which is another fucking weird story. But uh, when when I worked with them, uh, Mass actually pulled me aside and he said, man, I, I just wanted to say I'm really impressed with how professional you're handling this album. Like, you know, we didn't really know. We've never worked with you in the studio before, but you're taking this serious and like, you're making us do multiple takes until it's right, you know. I said, well, yeah, you know, that's what I do. I'm professional when it comes to recording and stuff. My my stage life, you know, on tour when I'm playing music, I, it's like a vacation for me. I just go crazy and do my thing. But when I'm working, I take it very seriously. And, you know, we would have long discussions about the songs and how we thought different things should change. You know, like, oh, you should go to the chorus here instead of going to the bridge. You know, whatever, you know we would take it very seriously. And he was like, I, I'm actually really impressed because I we didn't know what to expect. <laughs> you know, having you come in here, like you might be swinging from the chandeliers and shit. You know, who knows? <laughs> but um, but yeah, I think it turned out really well. I ended up singing a lot on that record too. A lot yeah. of the backup vocals are, yeah. are me and Andrea. But yeah, the Mohawk part of that story was uh, we were in Denmark on the Even and Blackouts tour, and we played with the Twenty Belows which, uh, you know, they named their band after right. one of my songs, which was a huge honor. Mm -hmm. Plus, they're really cool dudes, too. And so um, their drummer had shaved his head because, uh, I don't know, he wanted a new look or something, and he decided to see what it would look like if he shaved his head totally bald, and he did not like it. Like, he was really upset. I mean, he did it at a party. You know, like, <laughs> we, we played together. He went, we were all at this after party, and he shaved his head, and was kind of freaking out, like, what the fuck? I look like I have cancer. You know, like he didn't, he really didn't like his kind of a skinny dude. And I'm like, man, fuck it. Who cares? It's just hair, man. Like, what are you worried about? And he goes, oh, it's easy for you to say. You got like this fucking pompadour and shit. And I was like, fuck that. And we were in the bathroom because he was looking in the bathroom mirror all distraught <laughs> over his hairdo. And so I just picked up the clippers and I said, fuck that. Watch this. And I just started shaving my head. Like, I, <laughs> I, and I shaved a mohawk on myself right there in front of him and like he was laughing and like it cheered him right the fuck up because he's like damn that's cool he would do that to make me feel better you know whatever and uh so after i got mine done their bass player goes all right do me now you know and i'm like all right fuck it so i started shaving him a mohawk <laughs> and right then the fucking batteries died in the clippers like oh. i was like half <laughs> halfway through giving him a mohawk and the shit fucking just seized up and would not turn back on it like the clippers were done <laughs> and i'm like oh fuck what are we going to do now and he's like we're all drunk and shit and like nobody really cared that much and so he told me like years later he's like yeah dude i fucking he says, i'm mad at you still because that fucking clippers stopped and i had to take the bus home and everybody was looking at me like I had the mange and shit, you know, because it really there was chunks missing out of his hair, and um, but anyway, I you know I went, to, I guess everybody else from even a blackouts had gone out somewhere to some restaurant or something, and I stayed behind at the party to drink, and so when they came in 
at the in the middle of the night, I was already in bed, and they turned the lights on, and I raised up, and I said, I feel like a pony, and they look at me, and they're like, holy <laughs> fuck, what'd you do to your hair? But yeah, it was like laying down like a horse's mane. They're like, oh my god. So yeah, when I showed up to do that the the record in Italy, they were kind of like, uh, are you okay? Like, what the hell? Because I had this crazy mohawk that they weren't expecting. <laughs> That's great. <laughs> All right, Dummy Room listeners, here's the deal. This episode went so long that we're going to have to divide it into two. So this is going to be part one, and we're going to try to get out part two, like on maybe Monday or Tuesday this week. So stay tuned. Part two is just as exciting. Phil's got a ton more stories to tell, and I think you really dig it. In the meantime, I'm going to play something by the Teen Idols and get the fuck on out of here. So uh, thanks for listening, and we'll see you on Monday or Tuesday this week. Have a good one. Thanks for listening to The Dummy Room. Stay tuned for part two with Philip Hill coming very soon. Goodbye.